So just my name is Jason Primeth. I just wanted to uh, quickly introduce my friend Kurt. Um, I've known Kurt since I've been, we think about six or seven years old. And uh, so that was like 10, 15 years ago at least. So, um, but he was just starting his organization then and he's been in Jordan uh, and throughout the Middle East for more than 30 years now. And it's been a blessing and a privilege just to watch him do what he's been doing and learning so much from him. So the, when he came this weekend, we're, we've been spending a lot of time together and I've been learning so much and uh, look forward to learning some more. So please welcome Kurt Rhodes. It's uh, fun to be talking in English, all right? Uh, I may slip a bit, but if any of you know Arabic, you can correct me. Um, a lot of stuff is going down in my neighborhood. My neighborhood is Aleppo, Syria, Damascus, Syria, Beirut, Lebanon, Minya, Egypt in Upper Egypt, Amman, Jordan, the Zatari refugee camp in the north of Jordan, in the northern border of Syria where Turkey is. It's a pretty big neighborhood and a lot of stuff is going on. I'm going to have to tell you about some of the stuff that's not so pleasant. It's a very complex place, the Middle East. And you're sitting there thinking, okay, we didn't need to come here to hear this, you know. <laughs> but I want to tell you about some of the complexities. And the other thing I want to tell you about how simple it is. So the destruction. In 2011, there was an uprising. You can't call it an uprising. What you can call it is a bunch of university students and their friends had a demonstration about something that happened in the south of Syria. And the government crushed it and then chased the students throughout the major cities to make sure that they captured them so that there would be no more demonstrations. So this you would kind of expect from a, a, a government that rules through one party, one system. But what it did and I'm going to tell you the stories of numbers of Syrians. What it did is for 40-some years, under a very strict regime, you went to school, you worked, you went to school, you finished school, you worked, you tried to get, build a house, you tried to have a family, and you were in kind of a fog a fog of doing. But that time in February of 2011, you had a thought. It doesn't have to be like this. It doesn't have to be like this. And that brought tremendous, tremendous, unspeakable pain to people who were between 15 and 35. Because now what? if it doesn't have to be like this. What's your first question? Why is it like this? You know, are we caught in a very bad Truman movie and some camera's going to fall out of the sky? You know, why is it like this? It's resulted in almost complete destruction of the largest city in Syria, which is Aleppo. It's resulted in much of the destruction of Damascus, 
It's resulted in much of the destruction of Hama and Homs. It's resulted in the destruction of ruins in Palmyra. It's destabilizing the whole Middle East to have a state that that kind of thing is going on inside of. This is a serious issue. These are big deals. They're complex. When the Free Syria Army came into being, our question was, which one? There were 80 Free Syrian armies. You sort of need to think of them like Free Syrian militias. So which one are we talking about? The one on my block or the one on your block? Uh, and who's supporting, who's supporting you? Are they the same people that are supporting her? And who knows? You can't follow the money because there's no checkbook. But the money's flowing. Money is the blood of war. But I would equally say war is blood. Well, it's a mess. But it's also simple. In Syria alone, our organization has 1,800 staff and volunteers who serve about 300,000 internally displaced people. That's what you call a refugee in their own country. 300,000 people is a lot of people. But can you imagine waking up, where's Jason with his employees? Can you imagine waking up every morning thinking, what are my 1,800 employees doing today? And you don't have internet and you can't check up on them? But at the end of the month, you will pay the paycheck, right? So what's going on? What's going on is that people look at their friends as their neighbors now. They look at their fellow citizens as their neighbors. In 1,800 people, you are one kind of people, you are another kind of people, and you're all on our team, and your brother killed her uncle. And her mother was killed by your sister. How are you going to work together like that? Well, they have been through so much pain that it doesn't matter anymore. My pain is not worth more than your pain. Your pain is not worth less than my pain. We don't want any more pain. We're not going to let that come between you, between us. The amount of spirituality that exists in the people of Syria Right now, we're just talking about inside Syria. The amount of spirituality is phenomenal. These are extremely rare people with extremely deep pain and consequently extremely deep spirituality. I want to talk to you a, a bit about um, a guy named Amon. <clears throat> Amon is a killer. In military terms, we'd call him a fighter, right? But what do fighters do? They kill people, okay? So Eamon is a killer, and he was really good at it. I know his soccer coach. I've been out there 35 years, guys, okay? So you hardly can't do something that I don't know that your uncle was there for it, right? So I know his soccer coach, and his soccer coach said, you know, when Eamon was younger, what we told him to do, he did. He would follow the coach. And your coach can make you better, right? So Eamon went into the army like that. Then when the troubles happened in 2011, Eamon opts for the Free Syria Army, one of the 50 at that time. And he killed. 
And of course, if you kill, they will kill you. So he remembers numbers of nights sitting in a friend's living room with a Molotov cocktail between his legs. This is not like a James Bond shaken, not stirred cocktail. All right? A Molotov cocktail is a Coke bottle full of gasoline with a rag on the end, and you light it, and you throw it. And what it hits, gas splatters all over it, and the people burn. So he sat with this Molotov cocktail between his legs uh, two or three nights in a row, knowing that when they came in the door, that he would take some with him. He's a killer. His mother said, I don't want you to die. So she went on a hunger fast. 30 days, 40 days, 45 days. And then her heart started to give out. And he's, he's a young Arab man, right? He doesn't want to kill his mother. So she said, I will fast until I die before I will live to see you dead. So he had no choice, right? He crossed the line into Jordan, was placed in the Zatari refugee camp. Fortunately, at that time, we're talking in 2011, uh, now if he tried to cross, because he's a fighter, he wouldn't be allowed. He'd be pulled into some special category. But at that time, he was allowed to cross. And Amon is, is the English word buff? Buff, yeah, Amon is a buff. Um, he's got the flattest belly I've ever seen, you know? He's really, I mean, he looks tough. So Amon sat on a chair in the sun for two or three days, believing that he was dead. You're in a concentration camp. You can't leave. You have no freedom of movement. You're, you're waiting for someone to feed you. A, a, a um, refugee camp can feel like a concentration camp. So he thought he was dead. But in every community, there's always, an, uh, there's always the ugly duckling, you know, the one who's a swan instead of a duck. And that guy's name was Zahir. And Zahir is a tenacious bulldog. So if Zahir comes after you, he's going to get you. So he went after Abdullah. He said, Abdullah, I want you to come to a meeting about mentoring young Syrians. You're young, but there are younger Syrians here who need you. I'm not interested. I didn't study psychology. I don't have anything to do with this. I'm, I'm finished with everybody. And so what does a tenacious bulldog do? He just pulls harder, all right? So he got um, Eamon to come to a Quesco mentoring uh, session, and he left weeping. Why was he weeping? Remember the pain? He said, I saw that people could be different. And I wondered, why can't everybody be different? Why did it happen to me like this? Why is it happening to my people like this? Why is it happening to my country like this? But that pain drew him back. If you're readers of Henry Nouwen, anybody read Henry Nouwen? Uh, Henry Nouwen wrote a number of books on spirituality, and one of them is called The Wounded Healer. Well, those of us who know about Christ sort of get that, you know? But out of our woundedness, if we will open ourselves to the need of others, it doesn't just heal them, it heals us. So this is what happened to Amon. 
Uh, he once showed me, I was just with him, because I actually live out there, so I was with him in the camp just before coming on this trip. And he pulled out a picture from a wedding. And, of course, in the Middle East, the guy carries the picture of all the guys, because the guys have a separate wedding party from the girls, right? And if you're a girl, you have a separate picture of all the girls that were there. So I only get to see the guys. So he pulls out a picture of seven, eight guys lined up, four on one side of him and three on the other. And he said, they're all dead. They're all dead. He said, I only have two friends left in the world, you know, from his village, his generation, who are not dead, and I don't know where they are. He, he said, I was going to be dead. I was going to be dead. Fast forward five years. I'll, I'll go back and tell you what happened in the five years. But fast forward five years, and today Amon is responsible for our media productions. Where do you get media productions in a refugee camp? Well, Ban Ki-moon, you know this name? Ban Ki-moon has media assistants that do all his, you know, that when the talking head appears, somebody had to prepare the script and somebody had to arrange it. And those guys burn out after 365 days. So we got one who had worked for Ban Ki-moon. And he, he came out and he said, okay, if, the, if Syrians want to tell their story, and they do, they don't want people telling their story. Syrians want to tell their story, how do you do it? Well, how do you use the, you know, the, first of all, how do you create a storyboard? What story will you tell? What part of your story? How will you do the camera? How will you do the filming? How will you do the montage? I don't know what that is in English. Editing, film editing, to turn it into a story. So, Eamon the Killer is responsible for the mentoring program for young men in the camp. 6,000 young men so far. Because we're not talking about little numbers, you know? We'll do the numbers in just a minute. He's responsible for the media production. He's responsible for... Um, they are now becoming correspondents for the BBC... If you guys listen to, is it called uh, Public Radio International? You're going to hear some of our guys. They'll, of course, be translated for you. But now we have correspondents for the, for the BBC and Public Radio International who are original Syrian Arabs right there in the Zatari camp. And they are jazzed. But why are you jazzed? Because your life, you wake up in the morning and you want to get out of bed. And you know you're going to do something with yourself and for somebody else. But it's also progressive. Even if I can't leave Zatari camp for 10 years, I'm going to build a career so that if I did get out, or if the BBC spots me, I can, I've got something in front of me. Because human beings, we are more than cattle. If you feed us, clothe us, house us, and make us safe, we will never be satisfied. We aspire. We want to change. And the remarkable thing about the, the Syrian situation is that almost everybody thinks of Syrians as the problem. Okay? There are six million Syrians in the region, including a million in Europe, that are refugees. There's another eight million still inside Syria. The numbers just start... You get... 
I can't think of a million people, actually. You know, I could probably think of 5,000, because you could pack 5,000 people standing up like this in this room. But I don't, can't do much more than that in my head. So there are millions and millions of people, and there's nobody who can be a solution for them. They are the solution. So who will respect them? Who will say that, you know, you guys carry in your hands most of the solution. You know, we're going to have to, there's a phrase in Arabic that says you can't make noise with one hand. So we, they need another hand, but they've got their hand. They are competent people. In the Zatari refugee camp of 85,000 people, half of them are engineers, lawyers, Maybe lawyers should be in that camp, right? Um, that was an uncalled for comment, okay? <laughs> Maybe, all right? Uh, school teachers, librarians, nurses, people who ran, you know, they were civil servants, they ran government offices, very educated people. Generally, if they're educated, it was in classical Arabic, so they speak a very high level of Arabic, and French, little bit of English, okay? When, um, I'll let that go. There's too many stories, guys. Too many stories. <clears throat> There's another way to think about refugees, and that's what we're kind of moving towards, is that they are not the problem, they are the solution. Now, I did some homework in the room before I got started, and I discovered that there's an anthropologist in the room. You didn't know that, did you, an anthropologist? You sit up straighter when an anthropologist is around. Okay? All right. One of the ways anthropology looks at people, like refugees, like people who are going to commit extremist acts, is they, have, they, sell, they define themselves in new ways. They define themselves as being violent. So anthropologists have a way to think about refugees. Psychologists have a th way to think about refugees, that you get so attached to the group that the group becomes your identity and your identity becomes the group. There are people who believe that there are very specific steps that can take you into terrorism, and they've sorted out those steps. Some of this stuff we'll go over this evening. You have the security guys, the guys with the little curly wires out of their ears, and they believe that you can profile, we can spot you. You know, and we'll protect ourselves from you. Uh, you can have what I call a utilitarian point of view. If we just give you a job, that's going to make you a nice person. And you'll probably be nice like me, right? That's a utilitarian view. Uh, then we have political views. What political views talk about building walls and setting up separations. You can do sociology, you can do economics. But for people in this room, I would suggest that the view is, he's my neighbor. Will I be his neighbor? Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? You know? He's my neighbor. It doesn't have to be complicated. How I might serve him might be complicated, but it's not complicated to think about who he is. What have we done with Amon and Mohanad? and Amjad, and Allah, 
I can go on with all kinds of unrememberable names, you know, or 40 of them. And then I can go into 300 more names of mentors. So I started with the, the mentor leaders, 30 or 40 mentors, 300, 6,000 mentored youth. I can't remember the 6,000 names, okay? Um, so what do we do with these guys? A young Arab male, I have to put this down again, in the evening under a street light, if you have a street light. Fake leather jacket. You know where I'm going with this, right? Marlboro. Gelled hair. Attitude. Is he a beneficiary or a threat? Well, to most people, he's a threat. To us, he's posturing. You got to look tough on the street or they're going to eat you. Okay? He postures. So how do you deal with, with young men who need to be tough? And they maybe aren't tough, so they got to act tough. Well, you create spaces where they can come in and sort of be tough, but then you don't treat them like they're tough. You treat them like they're kind of human, almost human, you know? And ice begins to melt. And in two or three days, they're no longer perceived. They don't perceive of themselves as a threat. We've had... Uh, programs with about 3,000 young people who are called children in conflict with the law. And what that meant was the legal authorities were in conflict with them. All right? But of course, that doesn't make any sense to have a program where to say legal authorities in conflict with children. So we have children in conflict with the law. And because we can succeed, you guys remember the story of Daniel? And, you know, he was going to be given some... I would have not been a good Daniel because I like the red meat and the wine, okay? But he gave up the red meat and the wine and said, let me eat vegetables and my buds and drink water and come back and see. If this thing works, will you let us do it? And that's what we had to do with the authorities. Just give us a chance. And if it works, come back and see. We say in Arabic, buy this watermelon on the knife. You can cut watermelons open until you get the one that's as ripe as you want it. And you don't have to pay for all the others. So when you buy something on a knife, you're buying it on proof. Uh, this kind of works. Um, our motto, if you go to the website, the motto says Quest Scope, putting the last first. But how the heck are you going to put the last first if you can't help the first put themselves last? So we're really, I mean, this is going out live, right? So I'll have to phrase this very careful. We're a very delicately disturbing type of organization, okay? We usurp power. And we say, actually, this kid needs to go to school. Do you have a place for them in the school? No. Well, then we need to create a place for him outside of the school. Cool. But then you have to certify this kid as if he was in school, right? Otherwise, where will he go? Oh, we hadn't thought about that. Well, let's work on that for 15 years and come up with a solution, which is actually what it took. So to put the last first means to put the first last. I have no idea, because I didn't look at my watch, how much time I have left. All right, I'll try to do it in five minutes, which will be impossible. Um, 
we fa- we're in the 21st century, guys, and we're still thinking about 20th century solutions. For refugees, 20th century solutions were you build a, a, a perimeter around a space and you put people who wander in from the desert or the jungle in there and you feed, clothe, house, shelter, and, and it's a contained population. You can count them, you can provide services, you can build schools. Well, how many refugees did we say we have just in the Middle East? Six million. How are you going to build schools for six million people? How many refugee camps do we have already for six million people? You've got to guess. you just, just got to guess. 2,000, okay. We'll do... Sorry? 100,000. One more. It's like an auction. Last one, last one, last one. 1,000. Two. Not 200. Not 2,000. Two. Now, these are the official camps. There are what you call unofficial camps, but they're not protected and they're not served. Six million refugees? And you have two camps? And they're both in Jordan, and I'm in both of them? One has 85,000 people and one has 35,000 people. Where are these people? They're in basements, converted garages, chicken coops, you know, bad housing, places where people don't want to live. They're called urban refugees. Well, nobody's ever worked with urban refugees before. But, of course, we know what we should do. You have to round them up. Really? You have to round them up, and you have to put them in places where you can count them. No, it's not going to work like that. You're going to have to kind of approach it in a, in a guerrilla action type way. You have to build networks and hookups and relationships and trust. Um, the UN is not ready for the 21st century, guys. They're just not ready. And I know UN people and I like them. But they've got this huge bureaucracy that's going after the 20th century goal. That means, of course, that normal people, and I assume most people in this room are normal, right? Okay. That normal people have a role. You know, we can, we can be friends with people that reach our shores. We can be advocates for their humanity. You can even come over and visit. Okay? With the list goes on and on. I need to read you a story of a young man who is one of the urban refugees. He's jowled hair, very tall, flawless English, sells gold jewelry in a women's jewelry shop. So he's a very special refugee. He says, you know what drives me? Hatred. I live for hatred. Hatred drives me. Then he, we drink a couple more coffees. He goes, oh, and fear. Fear drives me. So hatred and fear. That's pretty dangerous, right? Because if you're full of hate and you get afraid, you'll do, you'll do stuff. Then he then a couple more cups of coffee, and he says, um, and why is nobody accountable for what's going on? Now he's angry. 
So I said, his name is Noah. I said, he doesn't have an ark, right? But he's Noah. I said, Noah, this is, we're going to do, we're gonna have to talk more about this. This is, this, you can't be. A hatred is like a worm. It's going to eat you from inside, Noah. Never. I said, okay, what do you think I'm going to do with Noah? I'm going to introduce him to Zahar, the bulldog. And what is Zahar, the bulldog, going to do with Noah? It's going to pull him into a mentoring relationship so Noah can discover that his pain is actually going to be the source of healing for other people who are also in pain. I don't get excited because we have refugees, but I get excited at the treasure that is in the refugee. Two more things just to mention. One of them is kind of a commercial for the 7 o'clock time. There is a manifesto to guide the violence that we, we call terrorism and extremism. Because not all violence is terrorism, and uh, not all extremism ends in violence. So there's, I told you it was complicated, right? It's okay. Um, but there is a manifesto called the management of savagery. It's written down in double-spaced, 11-point English writing. It comes out to 250 pages. It's very difficult to read, but it's the, the plan for making us fight them. All right? You would call it baiting us. Come in, come in, bam! Come in, come in, bam! All right? They've got a plan. And so far, we are walking right along the plan. Okay? And I don't mean Americans, I mean the West. Because we're afraid. Okay? Well, that's the point of terrorism, right? To make us afraid. And people who aren't afraid of, the, or who are equally afraid of those guys, but not afraid of us, meaning the refugee, they got a lot of stuff that they could help us think through. They are a huge resource for us to understand what's going on. But the reason I mentioned the um, management of savagery, they have a paragraph in there. The management of savagery, those guys say, he is the target. A teenager has a brain that will allow him to do things that he will never do again after he's not a teenager. Fortunately, because that's where you're going to get your creative stuff, right? And so they say, youth in the West are our target because they're the closest thing to the savage that we're trying to create. They're smart. The whole story of the management of savagery starts with the Bretton Woods Convention that created the International Monetary Fund in 1945. That's where the guys start and start deconstructing. So we're up against very, very intelligent people who know how to manipulate us, they know how to manipulate youth, and they know how to draw you into violence. We cannot afford not to know about some of this stuff. And thanks to the Internet, it's not too hard to know. When um, in many of the t- 
times that my wife and I and daughters had to evacuate Beirut or Jordan or Syria over the years. One of those times when my, my younger daughter, Nadia, uh, was three or four, um, Marsha and I had a, a Greek uh, a lady who cooked Greek food for us who came in every Saturday morning so we could have a date. You know, if you ever have, if you ever have little kids, you know what it means to have a date with your spouse, okay? Where you can actually talk adult talk and not be interrupted or change a diaper or something else is going on, you know? So we went out for a date, and instead of saying three hours, we had such a great time talking, we stayed four. So we come home, and Nadia is collapsing on the floor, weeping and crawling on her elbows. And I said, Nadia, what is wrong? Uh, she's a drama queen, okay? She's feeling this. <laughs> I said, what's wrong? She goes, I'm so hungry. I said, why are you hungry? She said, I need food. I said, no, no, that's not what I meant. Why didn't you ask Maria for food? She says, I can't. There are no words in Greek for food. Because she didn't know them, it wasn't possible. Don't be stuck like Nadia, thinking there are no words in Greek for food. There's no way to understand these people. There's no way to have dialogue. There's no way to get it. Because we'll just be crawling around on the floor weeping, you know. There are words in Greek for food. Thank you for letting me have this time to chat and share some of this stuff with you.